0: That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at uh, Job 31 under the title of Innocent Suffering. Innocent Suffering. We could broadly say that there are three types of suffering. The first one is deserved suffering. In that sort of suffering, we sin and we suffer for the misery of it. Sin always spawns uh, misery. That's all that sin can do. And when our sin catches up with us and we feel the pain of that sin, our response should be in humility to accept it, to submit to it, and accept it before a good, good father who disciplines his children. But even when we suffer for our sin, we do find it hard to submit, don't we? There's a second type of suffering, and that's what we might call innocent suffering. So we, we, we do not sin. We, we, we don't do anything wrong, but we still suffer. Examples of innocent suffering might be a, a natural disaster. It might be racial prejudice that brings innocent suffering. Sickness can bring innocent suffering. And if there was ever a time when innocent suffering has been thrust to the, to the, to the front, as it were, it would be now with this invasion of Russia into the Ukraine and bringing with it immense devastation and pain and suffering and loss. And I'm sure you agree with me that, that some of the pictures and some of the footage that come across our screens and that are continuing to do so, they, they leave Something of a broken imprint. You've got pictures like this that are coming across our screens. You've got the broken hearted of the Ukrainians. And you've got children who suffer. I was uh, watching 60 Minutes a, a couple of weeks ago. And they revealed that, that there are many Australians, though technically illegal, that have gone across to the Ukraine are fighting with the, with the forces against uh, uh, against Russia, they are fighting uh, for, for the innocent. And it's, it's amazing, really, that many are, m- are moved to fight against innocent suffering, even at the very cost of their own lives. Uh, innocent suffering comes in all sorts of forms, doesn't it? I was watching a movie called Brian Banks, and uh, it was the story of a, of a man that was falsely accused of sexual assault, and he spent some six years in prison. Innocent suffering comes in many forms and, 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 and shapes, and submitting ourselves to innocent suffering is very hard, isn't it? Then we might say there is righteous, innocent suffering, righteous suffering. So not only do. We, we do not sin, but either we do what is right for the Lord, which is good, or we stand for Jesus and his gospel, and we suffer for it. There's righteous suffering. And the world dishes out this sort of suffering against Christians in all sorts of ways and forms, and even Christians dish it out on one another. And even though we know that Jesus said that we will suffer for his name and we should rejoice therein, we find it very, very hard to submit to righteous suffering. But if there is a common ground between Christians and non-Christians, it's this. Christians and non-Christians wrestle with suffering. They wrestle with innocent suffering. The difference is that Christians and non-Christians come at it from a very different perspective i want to give you three headings as we uh, head towards job chapter 31 and the first one is the wrestling of righteousness if you've got your bible open job 31 we'll we'll get into it in just just a moment the whole book of job and job 31 is a man that is wrestling with innocent righteous suffering and and job is racking his heart his mind and his soul as to why god would allow him to suffer in the way that he is And and you know that his suffering was immense, don't you? If you went back into Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, you'll know that on a single day, he lost 10 children. On another day, he lost the entire wealth that he had. There was a devastation of of his wealth. And then you know that he was also inflicted with with a relentless incurable disease. But I want to put Job's life into perspective for you. Job chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. And you notice that Job suffered. This was not a godless pagan. This was not a man that was uh, given to a life of decadent idolatry. This is a God-fearing man. He's a God-loving man. He's an obedient man. And in fact, when you read Job 1 and 2, God actually tells Satan how righteous Job is. You could go and have a look at that in chapter eight, uh, chapter 1 verse 8, chapter 2 verse 3. Twice, God says to Satan, have you seen my righteous Job? If you've got Job thirty-one open in front of you, have just just with me, have a look at a picture. I want to give you a picture of the righteousness of the godliness of this man. So take a look at chapter thirty-one, verse one, where where he says, "I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman." Here is a man that is committed to sexual purity by 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 what he sees and what and what he does. In uh, verse 5, he says, I, I, if I've walked with falsehood or if my foot has hurried off the deceit. In other words, this was a man that was committed to truth and, and to honesty. This was a man that actually had integrity. Down into verse 9, if my heart again has been enticed by a woman or I've lurked at my neighbor's door, he was a man that was not, not enticed by adultery verse 13, if I've denied justice to any of my servants with a male or female, if they've got any grievance against me. In other words, I've looked after my servants. I've, I've been concerned about their welfare. I've, I've made sure that they've been paid on time and Then you, uh, verse 16 and 17. If I've denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I've kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, I've, I've, I've looked after the poor. I've, I've looked after the widows. I've, I've looked after those who are hungry. I've, I've, I've given off my food. Down in verse 19, he says, I've given off my, my clothes to those that don't, that don't have it. Down into verse 24. If I've put, if I've put put trust in gold or said to, to pure gold, you are my, Security, here. he was a man that didn't, he didn't love money. He loved God. He didn't love money. Down in verse 26, If I've regarded the sun and its radiance or the moon moving in splendor, here's a man that did not bow down to the created. He didn't bow down to the sun, the moon, and the stars. He worshipped the true and the, and the living God. Uh, verse 29, If I've rejoiced at my enemies' misfortune, if I've gloated over their trouble. I mean, here was a man that he didn't just love his neighbor, he loved his enemies. He didn't gloat over those who hated him. He had enemies. He didn't rejoice when they fell. And then in verse 33, we know that Job is not perfect because he says, if I've concealed my sin, as people do by hiding my guilt uh, in my heart. He, he, he wasn't sinless, but when he did sin, he didn't hide it. He didn't pretend that he wasn't a sinner. He, 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 he confessed it. He, he acknowledged that both, both to God and to man. If you wanted a template for godly living, this is it. If you wanted to trace what godliness looks like, it's this. We're going to wrestle with innocent suffering this morning, but we also need to wrestle with godliness. We must also wrestle with what godliness looks like, because if we want a picture of what godliness looks like, it's this. If we wanted to know what obedience from faith looks like. It looks like this. If you want to know what the the good life looks like that comes from a a good faith, then then it's Job 31. Have a look at this, for example, in Titus. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, to to, to further the faith of God's elect, and listen, and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Do you see it? If you truly know God, you truly love God, if you, you truly believe in him, that knowledge leads to the godliness of Job 31. And then same chapter, or sort of same book, uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Let's talk about Jesus and the cross. What does that do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to say yes to a self-controlled, upright, godly life. Here is a picture of a, of, a, of a God-fearing life. It looks like sexual purity. It looks like honesty and integrity. It looks like generosity and kindness, loving your enemies, loving your neighbor. It looks like loving God, not money. That's what a godly life looks like. It, it, it looks like what James said. It's, 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 it's a faith that produces itself in godliness, in, in the good life, because a faith without good deeds is, is, is useless. It's no, it's no good. See, Jesus didn't just come to die for the forgiveness of our sins. He came to empower us by His Spirit to continually put sin to death and walk in the light of life, which is a godly life, which looks more and more and more like Job 31. In fact, we could put it this way. Job 31 is a picture of what it means to clothe yourself with Christ every day. If you're going to clothe yourself with Christ every day, it looks like Job 31. But it's where we wrestle, isn't it? Because we also know Romans 7, don't we? Where Paul says as a Christian, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I hate, I keep on doing. And there's this, this wrestle against the flesh. And, and even Peter says that, that we, we have to fight against those inner evil desires that keep on waging war against our souls. I want us this morning just, to, to really wrestle with our godliness. I really want us to wrestle with a, a truth that leads to godliness. I want us to wrestle with what it looks like to live a life that God has called us to. We're not, we're not going to conceal our sin. We, we, we know what it is and we confess it. and We know that Jesus has paid for our iniquities, but he has also given his spirit that empowers us to live the life that God has called us to. One of the questions I would love you to do, and I'll remind you of this at the very end, is I would love you to spend a little bit of time and trace your life against the template of Job 31. How does your life as a Christian, how does it trace, how does it look against Job 31? But let's go to our second heading, which is the wrestling of righteous, innocent suffering. Because the primary wrestle of this chapter is a man called Job who is wrestling with his innocence before God. The question is this, God, how can you allow this to happen to me? What Job says to, to, what Job says to God is this, God, if I was sexually immoral, I'd understand it. If I was ungodly, I'd understand it. If I walked in deceit and falsehood, I'd understand it. If I was idolatrous and unkind and selfish, if I just didn't give a rat about the poor and the widow and the orphan and the fatherless, if, if, if I walked in darkness, I would understand my suffering. I could understand it from you. But I belong to you. I love you. I know you. I walk in your light, but yet you, you have dawned my life with darkness and suffering, and I just don't understand why. It doesn't make sense. I was talking to someone recently, and they were saying to me, you know, it's like the more I seek after the God, the more I want God, the more I live for Him. It's like the worse my my life becomes. Just look at the text with me, and it'll come up on the screen, but just look how Job puts it. Look at verse 5 again. He says, if I've walked in falsehood, if, or if my foot is hurried after the seed. I mean, if, I've, if, if, if that's what I've done, then, then God, then here's what you can do. Then, um, then may others eat what I've sown and, and may my, my, my crops be, be uprooted. In other words, if I've, if I've done these evil things, then I deserve punishment. And then look down at uh, verse 19 and 20. If I've seen anybody perishing for lack of clothing or the needy without garments. He says, if I've done that... He says, then let my arm fall, fall from the shoulder. Let it be broken off at, at the joint. Again, you see what Job is saying? If, 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 if I've done those things, if I've been ungodly, then, 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 I'd, then, then I deserve punishment. I deserve what I'm going through. But I, I haven't done that. I would humbly submit to my suffering if I was sinning. But I'm not. And his suffering has been immense, hasn't it? I mean, it's body, mind, and soul that has been racked over and over and over. And can I remind you that suffering continues long after the initial event? Do you understand that? Suffering continues long after the initial event. If you've ever lost a child or you've ever lost a loved one, you know that the suffering of that event continues for. A lifetime. How would you explain Job's suffering? How would you explain it? If you were one of Job's friends, what would you say to him? Well, Job's friends are so baffled. (laughs) They are absolutely baffled by what's going on, and they come to one conclusion. They come to the conclusion that Job must be suffering for his sin. Come on. You're a hypocrite, Job. You're concealing your sin. There is no ways a man like you can suffer for what is going on like you are unless you're doing something wrong. You've got to be hiding something, buddy. You've got to be deserving something of what you are going through. And it was a very Jewish mindset. It was a very religious mindset. It's actually still a common mindset today. It still exists in many Christian mindsets. I mean, you suffer the way you suffer because you've, surely you've done something wrong. Do you remember You remember the disciples, they come across John chapter 9, they come across this man born blind, and what do they say to Jesus? Who sinned? John 9 verse 1, who sinned? Was it his parents who sinned, or was it he that sinned? You see? So uh, Job's friends, here's the first one, here's his buddy. It's called Eliphaz. And uh, here's what Eliphaz says to Job in Job chapter 4 verse 7 and 8. Uh, Job, consider now, uh, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. You see? You get it? You've, <laughs> you've plowed evil. You're reaping it, mate. Uh, Bildad. Bildad says to, to, to Job in Job chapter 8, he says, Does God ever pervert justice? Does the Almighty ever pervert what is right? When your children sinned against Him, He gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Ouch. All your children died because they sinned. Oh, And actually, you're suffering because they sinned as well. And then uh, there's a guy called Zophar. And he says to Job, Job 11, 14, he says, if, if you put away the sin that's in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent. You see it? There's, there's evil in your tent. <laughs> You're going to put away that sin that is, that, that, that is in you. And all their conclusions come to exactly the same thing. Job, you are suffering for your sin in some way. And you know the best thing that Job's friends ever did? The best thing that they ever did was when they first went to see Job. Let me show you. Before they started speaking, Job chapter 2, verse 13. They, when they first heard about Job, they, they, they went to him. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. The best thing they ever did was to say nothing. You see, because the moment they opened their mouths and started to try and explain why Job was suffering the way that he was suffering, it all went downhill. See, they thought they were wise, but they weren't. They thought that they knew, but they didn't. They thought they knew God's ways, but they didn't. I'll never forget sitting in a church service some years ago, and a particular pastor was, he was reflecting on a particular innocent suffering. I'm not sure, can't remember what it was, whether it was a disaster of some sort or some sickness. But he was reflecting on an innocent suffering, and and this is the type of words that he uses. He says the God that I serve would never The God that I serve would never allow that. The God that I serve would never ordain that. The God that I serve would never will that. And I want to say to us this morning that we need to be very very careful when making statements about what we think God will and will not do or will and will not allow or will and will not ordain. We need to be careful Because Proverbs 26 verse 9 says this, like a thorn bush in a drunkard's hand is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Job's friends were foolish. They were foolish. It's extraordinary that when the apostle Paul is finished dealing with the extraordinary ways that God deals with Israel in Romans 11, he finishes it off by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. That's a much better place to be. You see, brothers and sisters, we can't rationally, logically, reasonably, scientifically trace out God's ways of doing things in our world, in our lives. Let me give you an example. We know that God hates innocent suffering, right? We know that. We, we know that God cannot do evil. He cannot be tempted by evil. He hates innocent suffering. And yet we also know that God puts authorities into place, right? Romans 13. So who put Putin into place? Who ultimately put Putin into place? It was God. God hates innocent suffering. Yet God has allowed Putin to go to that space. And God has allowed the, the atrocities that that man is committing. Non-Christians will quickly dismiss the truth of a good and gracious God because they cannot understand how a good God wouldn't stop innocent suffering if he had the power to do so. And I want to say to you, that's a profound wrestle. And you're not going to walk out of here in a few minutes' time with one neat little package on innocent suffering. But I do want to give you a little bit of common ground between Job and his friends. And this is profound. There is a significant common ground between Job and friends, which is often missed with others. As Job wrestles with his innocent sufferings, and as the friends weigh in with their assessments, there is one thing that never occurred to them that does occur to Christians even without realizing it. It never occurred to Job and friends that there was some sort of limitation in God. There was, there was never any doubt in their minds that God was absolutely sovereign over everything. As they wrestled with it, they, 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 whatever the reason for the suffering that Job was going through, they knew that God was in it, over it, through it. They knew that. That was never in doubt. And I think all too easily today, Christians limit God in some way, even at the drop of the hat, by saying those things. Well, God could never, God will never, God wouldn't, God w- wouldn't. He, he no. And see what those statements actually imply is that somehow God is limited, somehow His sovereignty is limited, somehow He's not not absolutely in control. You see the the, the wonderful common ground between Job and friends is that they knew that God was sovereign over suffering. He was in and through it. God is in control of everything. There are no limitations to God. None. Which takes us then to our third heading, the wrestling of our Redeemer. I suppose we could sit here this morning and say, well then, if, if, if God's ways in our suffering cannot be fathomed, and we talk about innocent suffering, Are we just left in this hazy sort of cloud of confusion and we just don't know what God's up to? His ways are so inscrutable that we could never know anything. The book of Job is essentially 42 chapters of wrestling with innocent righteous suffering. But we've got to remember that the Old Testament is not an end in itself and neither is Job an end in himself. So let me ask you, Does the relentless, innocent suffering of Job, does it remind you of someone else? Do the false accusations that he was suffering for his sin, do they remind you of anybody else that accused another innocent man of suffering for his sin? There is a way to start making sense of our innocent suffering, and there is a way to start explaining to non-Christians that the true and living God is not indifferent to suffering. He's not apathetic to suffering. There's a way to start explaining that God knows what innocent suffering is. He knows that pain. Now, let me give you the truth of the situation. It's not an easy truth to hear. Here is the truth about, God's, about Job's suffering. Job was handed over by God into the evil hands of Satan. That's the truth. Job was handed over in his innocent suffering. He was handed over to Satan. And Job suffered at the hands of evil Satan. Let me show it to you. Job 112, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Satan goes out. Job chapter two, verse six, the Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Job, God hands Job over to Satan, and suffering comes from an evil hand to one that is righteously innocent. Does it remind you of someone else? Well, it should. Luke 22, verse 3 and 4, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve, and Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with him how he might betray Jesus. Do you see it? The father hands Jesus over to Satan. And Jesus suffers at the evil hands of Satan through Judas. And we find Jesus wrestling with his innocent suffering, don't we? We find him wrestling with the Father. We find him struggling to submit himself to the suffering that is coming. So in Luke 22, you find him. Father, if you're willing, this is in Gethsemane, if you're willing, take this cup from me, not my will, but yours be done. Very same chapter, two verses later, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. As Jesus wrestled with his father, with the suffering that was approaching, it it, it was so intense and extreme and severe that he sweated blood. You see, Unlike Job at this point, Jesus knows that he has been handed over to Satan by the Father. And Jesus does know that there has been a joy set before him. But like Job, he's struggling, he's wrestling to submit himself to a good, good father who has handed him over to an incalculable Innocent suffering. And we see something of Job's friends in the crowds, don't we? When Jesus was being crucified. Remember these words in Matthew 27. Jesus is on the cross. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. You see it? You must be up there because you did something to deserve it. You must have said something. You must have done something. I mean, who suffers like that? Who goes? Who is nailed to a cross and doesn't deserve it somehow? I mean, the robber on the left and the robber on the right, they deserved it. Well, then you must deserve it as well. I mean, in fact, you're the one in the middle. You must be the worst. How could God the Father allow Jesus to suffer that way? God would never do that. God would never allow that. God would never. Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends back into heaven. It's Acts 2. The Spirit's being poured out. And the lights go on for Peter. He stands up at Pentecost. And this is what he said to the Jews that put Jesus on the cross. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Right there, you've got the mystery of innocent suffering explained. And right there in the resurrection, you've got the mystery of vindication and justice explained. God handed over the innocent, righteous, yet imperfect Job over to suffering. As the precursor, as the curtain raiser to the Father handing over His perfect innocent Son to suffer for our sin. Only innocent suffering can atone for guilty sinners. If the innocent one does not die for the guilty, there is no redemption. Don't you know, don't you realize that it's better for us that one innocent man die? For the people, then the whole world perish. So, where does that leave us? It leaves us wrestling with our righteous, innocent suffering. And one of the things I hope that you're asking is, and you're sitting here and saying, well, okay, if, if Christ suffered innocently for us, and what purpose does innocent suffering happen? Have, have in our lives. I mean, okay, that, we understand Christ, but then what about us? How does how, how does that apply to us? What what what's what's the purpose of that? What what's 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 the Father doing in our innocent suffering? There's a profound answer. Or at least one of the profound answers comes in this verse coming up, and it's one that we're just going to touch on. Paul says, "I want to know Christ." Yes. To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Job was a pointer to the sufferings of Christ. And Job was a participant in the sufferings of Christ. Did you hear that? He was both a pointer to the sufferings of Christ. He was also a A participant. What do I mean? Job was tasting a little of what his Redeemer would go through for him one day. Job was tasting a little of what his Redeemer would go through one day. Job 19.25. In the midst of his anguish, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. He had no idea. He had no idea the profundity of that statement. He had no idea how that was going to work out. He had no idea that his Redeemer would come and live and die and rise and stand on the earth for him. God was giving him a little taster of what the Lord Jesus Christ would go through for him. And go through for all his children. To know Christ is, to, is not just to know his righteousness. But to know Christ is to know something of, the suffer, of his sufferings for you. And so participate in his sufferings. To know Christ is to know something of his suffering for you. And so you participate in his innocent suffering, also anticipating that one day we too will be raised from the dead. To the non-Christian that comes to you and says, how is it possible for a good and gracious God not to stop innocent suffering when he has the power to do so? The question that you have to ask them is this, gently. Why would a good, good father give his innocent son to suffer for guilty sinners like you and me? Why did the father not stay his hand against his son? As we taste innocent suffering, we taste a little of what Christ has done for us. As we taste innocent suffering, we taste a little of what Christ went through and we participate with him in his suffering. And so we must wrestle. We have to wrestle with Job. We have to wrestle with our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. And perhaps we will arrive sometime, in some way, Even just a little. At Romans 11. Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever endeavor. Amen.